Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. Each summer, millions of Canadians get into a canoe and perhaps daydream about how far they could paddle. It's unlikely any of them think of paddling to the Amazon, but then they don't think like Winnipeg canoeist Don Starkell, who likes to do things his way. Don Starkell loved when people told him that his dream of paddling from Winnipeg to the Amazon with his two teenage sons was impossible. It only made him want to do it more. So did talking about it. So we talked about it. A lot. This is Don on cross-country checkup back in the 80s. It's just lovely to kind of go against the grain and people say something, you can't do this. And it's nice to try it to see, can you? And I'm not saying it can or it can't, I don't know. But I sure want to try. If we'd known what lay ahead, Don wrote years later in his memoir of the trip, we certainly would not have gone. I'm A.C. Rowe. This is The Doc Project. Welcome back, podcast friends. We have missed you over the summer. I am so excited for you to hear this episode because it is our first ever hour-long episode of The Doc Project. This is the story of Don Starkell and the epic journey that became known as the paddle to the Amazon. For 10 years, Don Starkell, a divorced dad, talked to his two young sons about taking them on a canoe trip. 12,000 miles, or nearly 20,000 kilometers, from the Red River to the Amazon. If you were to follow the Red River, upstream, heading south from Winnipeg, searching for its beginnings, you'd end up at other rivers, which presents an opportunity. At the border between North Dakota and Minnesota, the Boadicea and Ottertail Rivers both meet the Red. This means, if you wanted to, you could keep going. And going. It's this kind of geographic stroke of luck that made Don Starkell look at a map in the 70s and say to his kids, we can do this. We've paddled uh, countless times on the Red River. I mean, there was no issue about paddling up the Red River. You just don't really know what would actually happen. This is Don's youngest son, Jeff. He's in his 50s now. And 40 years ago, My father, Don Starkell, my brother Dana, and myself set off on the world's longest canoe trip at the time. It was June 1st, 1980. This trip would challenge their bonds, threaten their lives, and change them forever. To take us back to the beginning, I'm going to hand things over to Doc Project producer Kevin Ball. Here's Kevin. Jeff was just eight when his dad first floated the idea of taking an epic canoe trip. It was 1970. Don and his wife were newly separated. And Don had instituted a Saturday morning ritual with his boys. A trip to their neighborhood co-op for groceries, followed by a visit to the little library just next door to get books. 
My dad would go and get a lot of books about history of people traveling, you know, by canoe or sailboat or whatever. And I guess the idea started forming in his head and then into an actual plan. So, you know, he started talking about it, you know, what if? And I can remember him sort of saying, you know, people have done every inch of this trip in one form or another. People have paddled on the Mississippi, the the natives in Central America have paddled along with their outrigger canoes and you know, people will go up and down the Amazon in little you know, dugout canoes. So it's all been done. It's just a matter of putting it all together. Unbelievably, it's 40 years since we left. This is Dana, Don's other son, Jeff's older brother. Don wrote that when Dana was young, he kept a lot of pets, and he would often speak of going to the jungle. When Don asked him how he planned to get there, Dana would tell him confidently, I'm going to walk. My dad brought out the globe and I could stretch my thumb and my fingers from, from Winnipeg all the way down to South America. And he wanted to know how long I thought that would take me to walk there. And I, I, my best estimate at the time was about two weeks, which to me seemed like an eternity, right? Don wrote, our first strokes that morning were the culmination of 10 years of planning. Planning that had been precipitated by the breakup of my marriage in the summer of 1970. My wife's departure had been swift and painful, and thoroughly unexpected. Now all of a sudden I'm uh, uh, without a wife here, and I have my two boys I'm trying to bring up, and I want them to have a purpose. And it just everything just seemed to come. It just come kind of I imagined something. I looked at the globe, and I said to my sons, how would you like to do this? And they were eight and nine, and they said, sure, this sounds great. And so ten years, and we had to look at things, really, how can we make this thing happen? It's crazy to think that... Picking up a little book at a local corner store would um, lead to taking some type of an impossible canoe trip halfway around the world. For Dana, the trip was a dream come true. Everything, you know, that I had ever dreamed of, of, you know, seeing the jungle and the monkeys and in the wild and parrots and all this kind of stuff, that was all in my mind. And a two-year canoe trip presented the perfect opportunity to hone his chosen craft. All he needed was his guitar. It's not, it's not a crazy, crazy good guitar, but it's not terrible either. I paid, I think, a hundred bucks plus taxes in Winnipeg for it. Just, it's like the cheapest classical guitar I could buy. J- um, just before the trip, or for the trip? Just yeah, just before the trip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jeff wasn't quite so lucky. The beaches and riverbanks that awaited them were far less conducive to the study of his passion, electronics. Yeah, there's no question about that. The two things I really got a kick out of when I was a kid were locks and keys when I was really young, and then electronics when I got older. Dana was itching to go. Jeff had some reservations. I wasn't like 100%, you know, keen on going on the trip. You know, you sort of think I'm going to be out in this canoe in this, you know, hot weather and mosquitoes and, you know, paddling up this river for, you know, months and years on end kind of thing. You know, of course, you, you really wonder if you're, if you're doing the right thing. But as far as Don was concerned, it was time to go. The date had been set. We'll start June 1st, 1980, and uh, we'll get you out of school one month early because we have to leave in enough time to get down to the Gulf of Mexico before the hurricane season. In June 1980, on the Red River at Winnipeg, his custom-made fiberglass canoe was packed and ready for launching. 
I had all of the the feelings and emotions of a of a young kid, you know, like of a ten year old kid basically going off on a party. Everything you know that I had ever dreamed of, of you know, seeing the jungle and the monkeys and in the wild and parrots and all this kind of stuff, that was all in my mind. You know, this just just going off on this incredible adventure, and the logistical side of of the military and. Nicaragua under military control at the time and all the rest. I mean, you know, my dad could have explained it to me, but it, it didn't really make it. It wouldn't really sink in until I it didn't sink in until we really were down there. If his teenage sons didn't quite understand what they'd signed on to, Don seemed to grasp the dangers that awaited them as they prepared to launch from that Winnipeg beach. I think it's the toughest thing anyone's ever going to really try in a lifetime, and I'm talking mountain climbers, anybody, because it's every um, thousand miles that we travel, it gets tougher because we go into more hostile type of territories. With his two sons, Jeff and Dana, it was time to go. We're now going to the Amazon Hotel. <laughs> All aboard for the Amazon Hotel. It's... It's like anything. It's a bit like going on a roller coaster. You just sort of get in and, you know, away you go. It's like once you start, you start. The first paddle strokes and the start of a journey that would take the canoe down the Mississippi to New Orleans and into the treacherous seas of the Gulf of Mexico, on into the Caribbean, Colombia, Venezuela, the island of Trinidad, then into the rivers of South America, the Orinoco, the Amazon, all of it in a canoe. When we left Winnipeg, we're basically going upstream. The river, the Red River, is flowing north from the south to the north. From Red River into Guadassu. Eventually, you sort of, you know, the river just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller until you're basically in a creek. Into Mud Lake and all the way to the southern end of Lake Traverse in Minnesota nothing more than really a sort of a a little bog that was maybe 10 feet across or 20 feet across of water that was maybe a foot deep and we just couldn't paddle another inch. They had been paddling for a little more than three weeks and they had reached the Continental Divide which they'd now have to portage to get into the Minnesota River which would in turn carry them into the Mississippi. So we sort of dragged our stuff up out of the creek and we were, once we got through the little bit of bush, we were basically in some farmer's field. And my sort of important principle for my dad was that we just basically paddled or carried every inch of the way, no sort of assistance. And so we went up there and we asked this farmer, you know, to explain what was going on. They kind of look at you like you're half crazy and they can't understand why we wouldn't just get the canoe and put it in a truck and drive it down the road or whatever. But, but anyway, so he says, well, all I can offer you is this horse-pulled trailer thing, you know, that, you know, you put behind a horse and you'd put, like, a bale of hay in it or something, you know. And so we loaded the canoe and everything on it. Trailer, check, but no horse. And not really any horse power to pull it. In fact, they were a little short on human power. Dana was really sick at the time with his asthma, so he couldn't. He was just barely getting enough air to, <laughs> to stay alive. And so he was, like, turning blue and all the rest of it. And um, so we... He sat on the canoe and he took the harness and my dad and I just pulled it like a horse. We started on this little gravel road or whatever and we ended up going out into some kind of like an asphalt 
highway with you know with cars cars zipping past us you know <laughs> like the big orange canoe on the top and there was a bit of a hill and you know this thing weighed a lot i mean i don't know what that trailer weighed but it must have weighed thousand or fifteen hundred pounds at least you know it's like a fairly big heavy wooden thing and the, the trailer was like trying to overtake us and we we're running at the front <laughs> and there's nothing you could do there wasn't any brakes or anything and i think dana was trying to wiggle the wheels you know to kind of make it you know swerve back and forth to slow it down but somehow we managed to kind of make it to the bottom of the hill it's a good thing it wasn't a bigger hill and uh we we got there Don Starkell kept journals throughout the entire trip. July 31st. The Mississippi has been good to us, and we feel none of the resentment toward it that we felt toward the red. We do have our little hardships. Warm drinking water, Mississippi sand in everything, and of course the heat. August 5th, Memphis, Tennessee. Even if I never looked at our maps... I'd have no trouble calculating when we're approaching a city. The evening before we arrive, Dana and Jeff invariably have good baths and shampoo their hair, as they did last night, getting ready to impress the girls. Jeff pays more attention to the radio. Dana has less interest. He has his guitar. As we ate supper, Dana heard on the radio that the rock group Queen is in Memphis. He succeeded in finding the promoter, explained his situation, his love of the guitar, and presto, he was given a stage pass. It is now after midnight and Dana has returned, thrilled by the concert. He also managed a half-hour conversation with the group's lead guitarist, Brian May. August 18th. Before we land these days, I often remind the boys that our blood sugar is low and we're tired and irritable and that we must try to go easy on one another until we've eaten. Today, Dana took my urgings as a personal affront and we got into a spat which ended on shore when he took a swing at me and then bolted down the beach. I've been trying so hard not to be bossy that we've now got three captains in the boat, each with a mind of his own. It's a problem and I'm going to have to be a little less democratic. If I go too far, however, I'll have a mutiny on my hands. I need my crew. Need everything they can give me. So we had been rationing our food for a while. And um, <laughs> the only thing that we had left was a little bit of this pancake mix. And that was going to be supper. And it was going to be the meal for the next day. My dad kind of gave Jeff authority over those pancakes. It was like it was his pancakes. He could have what he wanted or whatever. But I was thinking more in terms of, you know, well, we're all doing our thing, whatever. We should split the food no matter what, you know. And so we ended up with two pancakes or something like that. And so we cooked it up and we took, I think, one and split it three ways. And that was our, our meal for the day. And then for the next day, there was this one pancake or a, a small pancake, I think, or a half a pancake or something like that, that we were going to divvy up. And my dad was divvying it up. And I guess he had felt that I'd got sort of shortchanged a little bit on <laughs> the previous pancake or something. So he gave me a little tiny bit more than, you know, it didn't break exactly evenly. And we're talking like probably a square inch or something. Anyways, Dana didn't want to have any part of this. He wanted his fair share of the pancake. 
<laughs> I wanted to have one of these pancakes, and my dad just said, there's no way. Dana, like, grabbed the pancake, and then my dad, I guess, kind of grabbed them in a big bear hug and smothered them down to the ground to kind of settle them down. I think I was holding on to our map case. And, of course, my dad's face, like all of our faces, was burnt to a crisp, you know? And I took the map case and I smacked him in the face with it and it hit his nose. And oh my God, he was going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did he look like? What did he, what did he do? Oh, he chased, well, you know, he just came after me, but I was faster than him. So he couldn't catch me. So he chased me down the beach, but he couldn't get me. And that's, that was the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to describe the hierarchy on the trip between the three of you, how would you see that? Was there a hierarchy? Yeah, I would say so. My dad was the captain, in a sense, you know, of the ship, you know. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he didn't want to be, like, dictatorial. So were you, like, first mate? or? <laughs> was yeah, there... I would say so in that regard. You know, I was in the front of the canoe. And um, so, yeah, I would say so. Nah. Well, we had been canoeing like that for years. So naturally, Dana, being... A year and a half older than me he was bigger so it would just makes sense that you'd put him in the front of the boat and it just became the norm i mean dana was in the front i never really thought about it and we certainly never thought about it in terms of any kind of hierarchy or anything like that it just it was never even a thought after 83 days on the water the captain and his crew bid adieu to the mississippi at new orleans they had reached the Harvey Locks, the gateway to the Intracoastal Waterway. The canal carried them west through Louisiana and Texas, skirting the Gulf of Mexico for more than a thousand kilometers. We took that all the way from New Orleans, basically, to the Mexican border. But as you go down that Intracoastal Waterway, most of it is sort of inland a little bit, like maybe a mile or two or whatever, from the actual Gulf, and it was pretty protected. But you'd see it out there, and you'd see the waves. In his journal, Don called September 20th D-Day, where they would leave the protection of the Intracoastal Waterway and head out into open sea. They had put off this day as long as possible for fear of what awaited them. After camping out at the U.S. Coast Guard base in Port Isabel, Texas for a couple of days, it was time once again to push off. Don told his sons, keep cool and listen to my instructions. Up until the time of, that we got down to the Gulf Coast, I'd never seen ocean waves in my life other than on television, right? You'll see people surfing, you know, in Hawaii or whatever, and you go, well, there's this crazy big wave, and you see this person surfing. We had started on this little protected water, a little river, whatever, but right away as we crossed into Mexico, whenever you have a river flowing out into the sea, there's always a sort of a funny interaction between the current and the river and the waves from the sea so it gets quite choppy and I remember going through there and you know you start getting into pretty decent sized waves like they could be five or six feet high but they're sort of rolling you know so you kind of go up and down and you're sort of thinking well if you tip and there's this current from the river you're probably not going to swim against it you're going to get kind of swept out to sea and you know you're just sort of thinking well you know if that does happen how far do you get swept out to sea yeah, I immediately knew that there was no way we were going to launch into those waves the way that my dad had described, that's for sure. He was thinking that somehow we were going to walk the canoe out into a certain depth and then, you know, jump in and somehow get through these waves. 
on our first attempts to launch, I mean, it was a total disaster. We had no idea what we were doing. Desperate to make some progress, Don and his boys made constant forays from the beach, only to be swamped by the breakers. As quickly as they could, they'd recover their gear bobbing in the rolling waves and scramble back to shore. But the beach offered fleeting refuge. Something even more unpredictable and potentially dangerous awaited them on shore. People. We were not far across the border, a beach area where there was absolutely nothing behind us. Like it was sort of just a big floodplain going back for miles where the the sand was only perhaps a foot or two above the, the ocean level. At one point, this policeman, local policeman, who knows from where, came driving down the beach with a little Volkswagen. And I guess he was a bit afraid of us. So he talked to us very briefly in some broken, you know, English and mostly Spanish and then left. And a while later, a big army truck came with soldiers, eight or 10, and they sort of drove their truck up, big like green army truck and all hopped out of the back. And they all had machine guns and helmets and they sort of lined up and pointed their machine guns at us and, um, you know, made it very clear to not move or whatever. And they, they were there for not too long, like 20 minutes or half an hour or something like that. And I'm not sure if they wanted a bribe or just checked us out, but I can just recall those guns pointing at us. And I was, I was really wondering, you know, is this, is this you know, going to go bad? But then it turned out to be pretty innocent. I mean, they ended up telling us to not worry about anything, that Mexico was a really peaceful country and we'd have a great trip and everything was fine. We did have some kind of papers with us, our passports and stuff, and they, they said we were fine. But that was the first time that, you know, you, we had a kind of an incident where, you know, all three of us, we were at the whims of these soldiers. You know, it wasn't like my dad could say, hey, leave us alone, you know. My dad was no longer the, 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 the person in charge, right? had talked their way out of trouble with the soldiers. But the ocean wasn't about to let them off that easy. Even though they'd cut their teeth on big water when they entered the gulf, the seas had grown so rough that safe passage was impossible. So for now, all they could do was wait on this beach for the breakers to give them their next break. Dana was happy to pass the hours practicing his guitar, but Jeff was growing increasingly restless. There was nothing to do. I mean, Dana was sort of in a different situation in the sense that he could continue practicing as he always had. And for me, all the things that I like to do, whether it's, you know, cars or tinkering with engineering or whatever, I couldn't do any of it because, you know, you need all kinds of equipment or tools or whatnot to do those kind of things. I'd go for a swim sometime and go kind of body surfing because, you know, typically when we were stopped, the waves were huge. And it's pretty fun to body surf. But then um, I remember stepping on something and I wasn't sure if it was a stingray or whatever it was. And I thought, I can't afford to step on a stingray out here, you know, because there's going to be no help. And uh, so I stopped doing that. And uh, But also, you know, you get all covered in salt water and you can't have a shower. So then you're sleeping with all the salt on you night after night and baking in the sun and it's not doesn't feel that great anyway. So it was pretty boring when we couldn't make progress. 
After 10 days mostly stuck on the beach, the seas had calmed ever so slightly, just enough for the trio to make a break for it. In his journal, Don wrote, they staggered ashore close to midnight. They had progressed two miles. The ocean was relentless and unforgiving. There had to be a better way. We could see on our maps, we could see all this these bodies of open water stretching along the coastline. Of course, you don't know how deep that water is. We, we assumed they're like little lakes, right? And, and being in a canoe, you figure, geez, you could paddle. You know, if we could just get into these little lakes, you know, these, what they called them, lagoons, we, we could go in there, we could paddle for miles and miles and miles down the coast if we could just get that far. And on our limited map, we could see this lagoon just inside from the sea. And we thought, well, we can get in there. We can make, I don't know, whatever it was, maybe 50 miles or something along this lagoon and be protected from the sea. So eventually we did. After a number of attempts, we'd finally get our canoe off the shore and into the gulf. And we had one particular day where we made really good miles and we got all the way down to the entrance of this lagoon. Don and Dana and Jeff had made it to the northern entrance of the Laguna Madre a long stretch of water that runs inland along the coast, sheltered from the ocean by a thin strip of shoreline. We didn't have much of a problem getting in there. I think we just sort of more or less paddled in on, on the northern side. There was lots of water in the lagoon as we went in. But as we were paddling along after a couple of days, the water kept getting shallower and shallower. From Don's journal, October 3rd, on Laguna Madre, Mexico. We've come 50 miles and are now at the south end of the lagoon. Several times yesterday and today, the water got so shallow, we had to get out of the canoe and pull it to deeper water. So we ended up walking for miles, dragging the canoe, dragging through the mud, and then we couldn't drag any further. The water just completely ran out. There was no water whatsoever for anywhere around us for like a mile. Next thing you know, we're in the middle of this lagoon, a mile on either side of us of mud. You could hear the, the breakers on the, on the ocean, like maybe about a mile away kind of thing. So we just sat in the canoe for, I think it was about two days. Sitting in the middle of this mud lagoon, no water. We were hoping that the water would come back up, but it didn't. And then the, all the ground around us sort of dried out and started kind of cracking. Little fissures all over the place in the top. So at some point we decided we'd walk to the sea and sort of see what was going on, to sort of see if we carried the canoe there, if we could get back in the ocean. And can sort of imagine this black mud and it's baked dry on the top but it's wet underneath and so the moment you stand on it you sort of break through the crust it'd be a bit like a hot pie and your feet go down through the the crust into this black really really baked in the sun hot mud and it was really hot and so we started running and we started like taking these big huge running steps and every time your foot goes down it just burns like you wouldn't believe and you know so you just want to like get your foot back up again as fast as you can but anyways we made it to the ocean and there was just no way we could launch the canoe there it wouldn't be possible and so we're we're thinking well what the heck do we do now the waves were coming in so rough you know we couldn't launch the canoe and and at that point my dad sort of thought maybe the trip was over so we decided that we would 
make our way to Veracruz, which was a bit further down the Gulf, and winter there and reevaluate. And that's what they did. They arranged a ride south to the city of Veracruz, and in the middle of the night, checked into an ant-infested room in what Don described as surely the worst hotel in Latin America. It was mid-October, and though they immediately began searching for a more permanent HQ, they hoped their stay would be short. But the Gulf had other ideas. After about a month, it didn't look like, you know, there was much of a possibility. That it, well, there's no real guarantees, and my brother decided to go back to school. It wasn't an easy decision for me. Um, I felt like I was letting them down uh, to some extent. But I, I'm thinking, am I going to take a risk on this when I really, I really don't think there's a great likelihood that they're actually going to be able to succeed? November 6th, Veracruz, Mexico. This morning, with tears in our eyes, we said goodbye to Jeff, and he slipped quietly away in a taxi. From Veracruz Airport, he will fly to Mexico City, then on to Toronto and Winnipeg. Jeff just figured, like, there wasn't a lot for him to do there in Veracruz. I mean, as much as it was a beautiful place to hang out, he had his eye on his future and his engineering and his electrical engineering plans and all the rest, and there wasn't really anything that he could study there and just sitting in his boarding house where we were. You can only do so much sitting in your room every day kind of thing, and I didn't think we were going to be able to carry on, and I sort of felt like I can't sit on the beach forever kind of thing, you know, and need to kind of get serious if I want to actually do something, you know? So I guess that was part of the motivation. The risk side out of the equation, I sort of felt like life was passing me by. My dad said we could end up living there for a couple of years in Veracruz and I could practice guitar. So I said, sure, count me in for that. I'll, I'll stay here in Veracruz, play guitar for two years. So Jeff headed home and Don and Dana settled into dorm style quarters and respective routines. Dana spent his time honing his guitar skills. Don devoted his days to snorkeling, treasure hunting, and spearfishing, and mulling over the possibility of resuming the trip. AC here. You can follow along with Don, Dana, and, up until this point, Jeff, on our website. There you will find a full interactive map of their journey, charting their course, complete with photos from along the way. That's at cbc.ca slash docproject. Coming up, one man down, we've lost Jeff, but Don and Dana are determined to keep going. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. 
From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. By Christmas, the gulf had calmed considerably. Dawn and Dana committed to picking up where they'd left off, and in mid-February, they set off once more. Determined to cover every inch of the trip on their own power, Dawn and Dana made their way back north of Vera Cruz to about 20 kilometers outside the fishing village of La Pesca, where, with Jeff months before, they'd aborted the trip. Back in October, the lagoon had been a cake of hot mud. But now it was full enough to paddle, at least at first. It quickly shallowed, though, so they had to hitch themselves to the bow with tow ropes. After two days of paddling and towing, they arrived once again at the sea. And before long, they were back down in Veracruz, with more than 600 kilometers gained, but more than 13,000 still left to go, and some of their greatest battles still ahead of them. One of the greatest, just after they crossed from Mexico into Belize. That particular night when we came in there was just an incredibly peaceful, calm day out on the Caribbean there, off the coast of Belize. We were about maybe five, six, seven miles off the actual shore, following these keys, the islands, but they call them keys there, right? From Don's journals, May 5th. In the Colson Keys, Belize, our protective keys, small islands formed of coral, are minuscule parts of the second largest coral reef on Earth, the largest being Australia's Great Barrier Reef. All the way from Belize City, we'd been following these keys. The weather had been pretty calm. We come into this island, and there's a fishing shack there. It's the only time that we could actually get into a shack and, and camp out there inside and be completely out of the rain if the rain came and all the rest. The shoreline was far too jagged for a landing, so we let the canoe loaded and in the water, tied to three posts that had been driven into the coral six or seven feet apart. I guess the fishermen would tie on there with their motorboats, and we just floated the canoe in the water. I don't know, maybe a foot of water, if even that. My dad, he started tying a bunch of knots, and he tied the canoe up as though we were about to go through a hurricane. And yet... There was, it was the calmest possible day we could have had. The weather had been settled. I, I don't know what got into his head. Our shack was in pretty grim shape, but we scraped the floor as clean as we could get it and moved in. And we went to bed. Like, the skies were perfect when we went to bed that night. By 11 p.m., Dana was asleep and I was in total darkness, except for a tiny dot of red light from the radio. Because he used to stay up late and listen to his radio. He had the shortwave radio still. At about midnight, the radio crackled sharply and went dead. Though the red light still showed strongly, which was strange, I turned the set off and tried to sleep. But as I lay there, I began to feel uneasy. So then he woke me up and he said, you know, Dana, I was listening to the radio. He says, it's the strangest thing. I, I, he says, I still have it where the station is, the light's still on, but he said, it just went dead. He said, um, look out the back window and see if you can see anything. And they had like kind of a plank of plywood on hinges kind of boarded up for the window. 
And so I opened that up and I looked out there and what I could see was just a black wall in the sky coming towards us. It didn't look good. Before we could do anything, lightning cracked out of the sky and our little world was plunged into a chaos of wind and rain, thunder and lightning. Man, like, I mean, it ended up blowing the waves right over the island. In no time, our flimsy shelter was swaying and quivering on its four-foot stilts. We did our best to tie down the shutters and to tie the door shut, but there was nothing we could do about the crude siding, which was now flapping loose and starting to pull away from the walls. Only after several minutes did I come fully to my senses, remembering in a panic that the canoe was still in the water just a few feet from the lethal coral bank. I tried to open the north door, but could barely push it open a crack. Then a blast of wind drove the door shut against all my strength, and I was unable to force it open again. A whole sheet of plywood siding was now ripped off the shack and whirled away, and Dana started shouting, We're going into the sea! We're going into the sea! The huge waves were now washing right across the island, tearing at the stilts of the shack. I clung to the door jamb, trembling in the darkness. We woke up in the morning and we, we, we were convinced that we had no canoe. There's just no way. It had to have just been demolished and blown out to sea somewhere. And my dad opened up the front door. He looks out and the canoe is just sitting there floating in the water, still tied up. Packed up and retarped, we kept saying to one another, It's a miracle. I've never seen anything like it. It's got to be a miracle. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't seem possible. You know, like there's no reason why that canoe should have still been there, right? Don and Dana crossed into Honduras, where they made camp on a quiet beach. That night, Don wrote, Ahead of us are nearly 400 miles of Honduran coastline. May every mile be as peaceful as the first view. At the end of a day of paddling down the coast, we could see this big stretch of coconut palm trees. We figured if we got down there, we could get coconut water and all the rest. And when we first got there, there was these two ladies, and they were out washing their clothes on the beach. And then we befriended them. We started talking to them, and we told them that we were short on food and we were trying to conserve our food supply. And they said they could cook us up a couple of meals of rice and beans for a couple of bucks, you know, a dollar each of American currency to them, like a gold mine, you know. So now we didn't have to worry about cooking dinner that night. And so I'm sitting there practicing guitar and these two soldiers come along and they start ch- chatting with my dad. And I could hear them talking, but I couldn't really make out what they were saying because they were too far away. But they had a pretty good conversation with my dad, and then they left. We didn't feel particularly in any threat. You know, we're at a coconut plantation. How dangerous can that be, you know? We thought that was the end of them. We didn't think we were going to see those guys anymore. We were getting close to ready, expecting these two ladies to come back with our dinner. They showed up instead. 
But now one guy was on a horse and the other guy had a shotgun. And they walk right up to us. And the guy levels this shotgun at us, raises it slightly over our head, blows it off just to show us they weren't fooling around. And then they ordered us down to our canoe. And then they started rummaging through our canoe and looking for stuff, and they found all kinds of stuff they wanted to keep. At one point, they had a friend of theirs go get some rope. They were going to tie us up. Then the sun went down. Once the sun went down, they didn't have to worry so much about anything because it was pitch black and nobody would be able to see what they were up to. And so they started walking us down this road. And they stopped a few times to shoot us. But every time they would stop to shoot us, some people would come along. At that stage of the trip, my dad is thinking like, you know, we're not getting out of this. These guys are going to kill us. And meanwhile, my dad and I, we were saying everything under the sun. Like, you know, we were saying, oh, you know, the United States Army was following us. They knew exactly where we were. And they had been drinking, too, so they were, like, half-corked and out of their head crazy, and, like, we couldn't really reason with them very well. And then we ended up getting into this military base. They kind of chickened out. Which is interesting in itself. I mean, I, I wouldn't say they're the nicest guys we ever met, but, but the fact that they didn't kill us says something, right? The next morning just before they were released and returned to their canoe, Don and Dana learned why their lives had been spared when the women they met the night before showed up at the military base. They came seven miles from that plantation all the way down to that military base the next day and and met us there, and they were crying. Up until that point, we thought it was our own smart thinking that saved us, but it didn't matter what we did. I mean, if if they'd killed us, who was going to say differently? That wasn't what saved us. It was those two ladies that we had met that saved us. They told them that if they killed us, they were going to report them. And those guys could have turned around and put bullets through their heads. Just as easy. May 25th, 1981. As we lie here tonight, we are less than 40 miles from the Rio Coco and the Nicaraguan border. I think I've convinced Dana that things can't possibly get any worse, and will probably get better. On those grounds, we've agreed to carry on. Our last act before going to bed was to shake hands on our agreement. Tomorrow at 5 a.m., we'll be back on the seas. We're too stubborn to to give up, you know? With nearly a year since they left Winnipeg, Don and Dana still had more than halfway to go to reach the mouth of the Amazon where it spills into the Atlantic. They had paddled through six countries with seven still to go. War-torn Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, Colombia, Venezuela, Trinidad, and finally Brazil. And no matter what the waves or the weather threw at them, their biggest threat continued to be other people.
we adopted a kind of a survival mode and that it was such a part of the way we thought at the time was to just kind of look at somebody in such a way to say to them, if they bothered us, we would kill them. We never knew who to trust and who not to. Every day felt like we were surviving a, a war. You know, we get back to shore and my dad and I would give each other a big hug and felt like, geez, we'd, we'd just come off the front line and we'd survived another day. But Dana had one weapon that time and again proved to be powerful at keeping the peace. When we finished our paddling day, my first thing was to grab my guitar and I'd go and practice guitar. and, and Practice that quickly became performance if there were any people around. Um, people that were, sometimes they're afraid of us, you know, so we'd land and we were so strange looking that the whole town would be literally terrified of us. You could tell in their eyes they were terrified of you. So I found if I brought out my guitar and played a couple songs, you know, kind of nice relaxing music, then right away people are like, hmm, they're probably not going to try and kill us, you know. And it was amazing. I, I can't say it enough. You play one song on guitar and all of a sudden... Next thing you know, a little kid comes from some little hut, you know, and he's got a guitar and he wants you to show him how to play something. And so, anyways, the song that I used to always play this was this Spanish ballad. Don and Dana made their way along the coast of Colombia's Guajira Peninsula. Don savored the increasing remoteness, despite the desolate, arid landscape. He wrote, Our prayer for a breather from the pirates and dope trade has been answered. Our only human company in four days has been the Guajira Indians, who greatly impress us with their ability to survive on such a godforsaken corner of the planet. But it was only a breather. And by then, being in a constant survival mode was taking its toll, pitting father and son against each other. There was times where, you know, I felt like cutting him in half with my paddle. You know, and and I would throw my paddle at him, like I, like I would shoot it at him like a helicopter blade and like to cut him in half. I would I would come as close to him as I thought I could to kind of scare him. August 16th, 20 miles into Venezuela. Dana is irritable beyond belief. This afternoon, he picked up our plastic map container and swatted me across the face with it, roughing up my cheek and gashing my nose. He then took off down the beach like a jackrabbit, and I was left boiling in frustration. I only wish that I, too, could blow off steam as directly and effectively. The number one thing that used to drive me crazy was that I was always looking to basically follow the coastline as safely as possible. So he's thinking more about distance. I'm thinking more about safety. And that's where a lot of the friction was a lot of times because I was constantly trying to pull a canoe in and he'd be trying to get it out to the other end. And, and he had more control over the direction of the canoe than I did. September 3rd, La Vela de Coro, Venezuela. 
Dana is again showing the stress, arguing constantly with me over every little difference of opinion. It's all so discouraging and wrenching. Here we are, father and son, isolated in South America, 8,000 miles from home. And what are we doing? Fighting instead of supporting each other. I've reached a point at which anything that separates us is unbearable for me, far more draining than any of the other hazards of the trip. Without each other, there's just no reason to go on. But I mean, I couldn't cut him in half. That was our main engine right there. <laughs> I needed him as much as he needed me, and there was nothing we could do to hurt each other. But it didn't mean that, it didn't mean that we weren't wouldn't get mad at each other. God, you know, we could get each, mad at each other to kill, you know. But but we never we loved each other, you know. In mid-October, Dana and Dawn arrived on the shores of Trinidad, where they would rest and regroup for the remainder of the year, and take stock for the final leg of their journey. The days and weeks flipped by quickly, and on January 4, 1982, the two crossed the Columbus Channel back to the Venezuelan mainland. Here, they bid final farewell to the ocean, and turned inland, up the Orinoco, into the Rio Negro, and then down the Amazon to its mouth at Belém, Brazil. I would say as early as Manaus, like a thousand miles to go, we were starting to feel that feeling of, you know, this adventure that we'd been on for two years was coming to an end. And, you know, up to that point, every single day was an adventure. It was always something new. You know, what's around the corner? Beautiful, beautiful things, you know, just interesting people. It's like going through a new museum every day of something new. And neither of us really wanted that that part of it we didn't want to end. April 2nd, 1982. Manaus, Brazil. This evening I'm sitting in an open-air restaurant on top of the cliffs, enjoying my last night in Manaus. A few feet from me, Along the edge of a cliff, there's a curious tiny trail about six inches wide and embedded perhaps two inches in the hard-packed clay. It runs off in both directions for several hundred feet. A while ago I approached it for a closer look and discovered dozens of black ants striding purposefully along it in both directions, many carrying chunks of leaf and greenery up to three or four times their size. Tiny feet, many years. On May 1st, 1982, Don and Dana paddled into the port of Belém, where the Amazon meets the Atlantic. The final strokes of a journey that had taken them exactly 23 months, covering nearly 20,000 kilometers from their starting point on the Red River in Winnipeg. They were going home. Total trip was 23 months. Shortly after returning to Canada, Don and Dana spoke with CBC's Morningside. 12,107 miles which relates close to 20,000 kilometers. Pretty close to it. Tell me, Dana, why are you guys still alive? 
when I think back to all the situations that we went through, I sometimes have a it's very questionable how we are alive. Did you think you were prepared for this trip? I was probably prepared the best by being ignorant of a lot of the situations that I was going to get into. It allowed me to get far enough into the trip before I could really turn back. How'd you get back? Uh, when you say back, like from, uh, Belém, from Bra Brazil? Mm-hmm. Well, when we got to Belém, Brazil, there was a few boats in harbor there, and one was a Dutch ship called the Saba, and sure enough, a blonde Dutchman jumped off the back of the ship along the wharf, and we mm -hmm. talked to him, and he invited on board. Don and Dana Starkel, they obviously said you were crazy, but you obviously made it. It was great talking to you. Hope your blisters heal and your luck never changes. Can you hear me, Kevin? Hey, Dana. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I created kind of like a little makeshift microphone. It's been 40 years. But in many ways, the trip is still not over for both Dana and Jeff. Uh, I don't know if you got my message last night, but oh, it'd be great to hear... A little bit of guitar. Dana uh, is a professional so classical guitarist. I did. I've got, I brought my guitar out here. So he I've also speaks regularly at schools and, and corporate events about the trip. There's probably a lot of people that that are listening to the interview today that have have they have never even heard about our trip. That you know, it's it's yeah. been so long. You know, so. All right, I'm back in record mode, Kevin. Okay, I'm recording too. He lives in yeah. Bettendorf, yeah. Iowa. Bettendorf, Iowa, which is part of the Quad Cities, which is right on the Mississippi River. A city he first encountered all those years ago on the trip, imagining the life awaiting him. I think it was this imaginary idea of getting down to the jungle and fulfilling that fantasy was what sustained me for the two years in a lot of ways. I've always been kind of a dreamer in that way, and so, you know, it gave me a lot of... I mean, every day it was my strength. Right. And so, you know, sometimes the logical and... And practical is not always your strongest hand, you know? I think Jeff definitely has a different perspective about the trip in different ways. And certainly now, 40 years later, it'd be very interesting to see if he has any new thoughts about it, you know? Jeff lives in Ottawa. He owns and operates an electronics design company. When I first reached out to Jeff to ask him to be in this story, I worried it just might be an exercise in revisiting regret. He left a quarter of the way into the trip, but still, he paddled some 5,500 kilometers from Canada to Mexico at 18. And plus, it's been 40 years. Because I came back, I think it sort of left with me this sort of thing that, you know, if you go to do something and you decide not to carry through to the end with it, um, you sort of live with that forever. And... You know, so anytime you're in a situation where something's pretty tough and you're deciding, you know, whether you're going to stick with it or, or not, it's a real incentive to stick with it if you started it for a good reason. I think in general in life, it doesn't hurt to have quit something at some point in your life to know what it's like to, to do that as opposed to not carry through to the end. We figure that we both should have died seven, eight, nine times. We should have never recovered from circumstances, gunpoint, uh, tropical storms paddling at night at sea. That's Don speaking to Arthur Black on CBC Radio in 1987, a few years after he and Dana returned from Brazil. We, oh, no, no doubt about it. Like, we're scared now to do anything that's at all risky because we figure, like, we've used up our... You've used up all your, if, your, if your is, nine lives. If, if there is such a thing, they're gone. Don Starkel died in 2012, but not before attempting to paddle the Northwest Passage in a kayak. 
He made it within 60 kilometers of Tuktoyaktuk before having to be rescued. He lost most of his fingertips and many toes to frostbite. He wrote, I don't have to prove anything to myself anymore. Finally, at age 60, I'm at peace with myself. My adventures are done. Now, your, your boys are, uh, you know, at the age where they, they might be considering getting married in a couple of years, maybe having some grandchildren. Wait until you got some grandchildren and, and do it with them there. Uh, how about it, Grandpa? Well, I know my son, Dana, he wouldn't go canoeing with me again. He's had enough, and he's smart, very intelligent. And uh, I know that he, if he had children, and they'd be grandchildren, he'd have them educated. They wouldn't go with me anyways. Dana is now nearly 60 himself. He has a 10-year-old son. Oh, geez. He's just a great kid, you know. Um, he wants to be a chef. One of his goals is to open up a restaurant in New York City. I asked Dana if he'd ever consider taking his son, David, on a trip like the one he made with his dad. I am over 10 years older than my dad was when we left on that trip. So physically, I don't know if I could even handle it. And then, you know, knowing what, what I know of that experience, it would be difficult for me to psych myself up to do a trip knowing what, what lay ahead. And then would I, would I risk my son's life? That's, I think, is, is probably the number one thing that people would wonder about is, you know, how does somebody like my dad take their son on a trip for two years through Central and South America where, with all these inherent risks? And, you know, did, was he not concerned about your life? And there's a lot of truth in that, right? But the only answer that I could really give to explain how my dad could do that, knowing my dad the way that I did, was his greatest fear was was not living life. He'd gone through enough experiences in his life to know that 99% of what you fear the most never happens. So I think in his mind, he figured, of course there's dangers ahead, but maybe if we use our brains and treat people right, we, we can come through this unscathed, you know, somehow. June 5th, Grand Forks, North Dakota. What's left to say? We pulled into Grand Forks this morning and dropped off our U-Drive. We had contacted Jeff by phone, and just as we left the car rental agency, I spotted him coming down the road in my old red Datsun. I went down there to pick them up, and I'll never really forget that, um... You know, I hadn't seen them for like, you know, a year and a half. And my first thoughts when I saw them was, you know, there's my brother. I love him. My dad, I, like, I miss them. I want to run and give him a hug kind of thing. But boy, oh boy, they looked really, really wild. And wild, like, like I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody so wild looking like that. First, they were just like tanned, you know, to a crisp. But it wasn't that. It was this sort of a, a strange look where they um they they just look sort of hyper um alert and aware almost like an animal you know it'd be the best way to describe it like put it this way if they weren't my brother and dad i would not go up to them i they just were looking way too wild (laughs) and (laughs) it was uh yeah it was a weird it was a really kind of weird reunion if you like um it was sure good to see though that's all i can say That doc was produced by Kevin Ball. It was edited by Allison Cook and me, A.C. Rowe. 
This year is the 40th anniversary of Don, Dana, and Jeff's trip. And the canoe they paddled in, dubbed the Oriana, is currently on display at the Canadian Canoe Museum in Peterborough, Ontario. It is something to behold, plastered with stickers from their stops along the way. There is a beaver sticker, a Canadian flag, of course, and inexplicably, a giant one from Texaco. If Peterborough is a bit of a jaunt for you, you can also see photos of the canoe on our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. Before you go, please, if you enjoyed today's episode, our first hour-long episode, take a moment to rate and review us. It means a lot, helps other people find us. Also, some podcasting admin. We are going to be releasing on Fridays now, at least for the next few months. If you can remember, we used to release on Tuesdays, and then at the beginning of the pandemic, we moved to Fridays because of all kinds of boring things you don't need to know about. Anyway, we are going to be keeping with Friday evenings for the next little while. I will update you if that changes. Okay, that's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Kevin Ball, Julia Poggle, Allison Cook, and me. Our digital producer is Althea Manassin. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.